0: Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Wall Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. For the remainder of our first series, we're turning to our big annual lectures hosted in London, Edinburgh, Cardiff and Dublin, before finishing up with our annual debate. Today we have the 2021 Annual Cardiff Lecture, delivered by Richard Moran. Now if, like me, you get a little bored by people telling you that you ought to live in the present because the past and the future aren't real, then Richard's talk will tell you all you need to say in reply next time you're being lectured about your so-called delusions. Richard Moran is a brandy Young professor of philosophy at Harvard University. His primary philosophical interests are in the philosophy of mind and moral psychology, aesthetics, the philosophy of literature, and the later Wittgenstein. His most recent book is The Exchange of Words, Speech, Testimony and Intersubjectivity. After Richard's talk, there is a discussion featuring questions from our live online audience, chaired by Sophie Archer, lecturer in philosophy at Cardiff University, the hosts of the lecture. Before that, here's Richard Moran on The Philosophical Retreat to the Here and Now. In this talk...
1: I'll be looking at some familiar philosophical responses to the temporal aspect of our lives, the fact that we live out our lives in time in various ways. Time passes, our lives pass, and our emotional lives provide a kind of temporal anchor for our lives, providing a sense of continuity over time. If we are necessarily time-bound creatures, then we're vulnerable to the uncertainties of the future and the losses that go with the fact that our present lives are continually slipping into the past, where we will never recover them. Various familiar kinds of therapeutic philosophy, in both Western and Eastern traditions, present themselves as offering a perspective that we can take on life that places us outside the hazards, the accidents, and the dependencies of life. A common idea is that the more we can conceive of what really matters in life, as something purely internal to ourselves, the less we will see ourselves as hostage to fortune. A form of wisdom presents itself as the recommendation of a perspective on ourselves according to which, for what really matters in life, we cannot be affected by good or bad luck or the contingencies of external events or other dependencies. One important and seemingly inescapable form of contingency that we're subject to is the sheer fact of living in time, time that's always passing and which takes with it downstream so much of what we build our lives around, including the people that we are attached to. Of course, the flow of time brings new things along as well, but they too will leave the scene just as we all will one day or another. Living in time means living with loss and the anticipation of loss. Transience, it's an ongoing fact of life and philosophers of many kinds have argued that we ordinary humans are making some kind of basic mistake in the attachments that we form to what passes in time and that our emotional concern with what lies lost in the past or in the unreachable anticipated future that all this can only be distractions from either the exclusive reality of the present moment Or perhaps the attainment of a perspective outside the passage of time altogether. It's true that we can dwell on certain aspects of the past as a kind of attempt to preserve it in memory so that perhaps it's not entirely lost. We can also get absorbed in the past and lose perspective on the lives that we're living now. And in a parallel fashion, we sometimes dwell in anticipation of the future, dreaming of better days to come, or as though our real lives have not quite yet begun and will take place in a very different world of the future that we can only imagine now. It's possible to lose perspective here too, and this is also a theme of poetry and song and drama. There are clearly many different ways in which we relate ourselves emotionally to the temporal aspect of our lives. In fact, very little of our emotional lives makes sense apart from our temporality. When we regret what we said, or angry at what someone else said, or when we look forward with pleasure or anxiety to meeting someone, we're not only feeling something that's directed at a past or future event, rather, these emotions themselves are ways of temporalizing our lives. As with our emotional lives generally, there are better and worse ways of living out our lives within time. As mentioned, we sometimes describe someone as dwelling too much in the past, either lost in nostalgia or consumed with regret or a grudge against someone that they can't let go of. And similarly, our fears or dreams of the future can crowd out an appreciation of or concern with our present lives. So there seems to be a real question about better and worse ways of experiencing and being concerned with the temporal aspect of our lives? I'll be considering some philosophical responses to this question, which are familiar in their radicality, for they ask us to see through our forms of temporal concern as being some kind of illusion. We're sometimes pictured as making a kind of metaphysical mistake in our attachments to the past and the future, a mistake about reality, and a mistake about what we are essentially are. The redeeming thought being offered to us here, however, is that from the right perspective of our lives, we can live without real loss, the loss that comes with temporal existence, with the fact of transience, either because the present moment is the only reality there is, or because the right perspective on our lives is a perspective outside of time itself where there's no risk of change or loss. In this talk, I want to examine these claims and raise some questions both about the philosophical diagnosis of a certain illusion that we're supposed to be under, and about the promise of a perspective we can take on our lives that's properly immune to temporal loss. So here are two representative and quite wonderful philosophical expressions of the idea that an emotional attachment to the past or the future is a form of attachment to something essentially unreal and is something indulged in at the cost of failing to live in the only reality we actually have, which is that of the present moment. The first one is from the philosopher, German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, an essay of his on called On the Vanity of Existence. He says, The scenes of our life resemble pictures in rough mosaic. They're ineffective from close up, and have to be viewed from a distance if they are to seem beautiful. That is why to attain something desired is to discover how vain it is and why, though we live all our lives in expectation of better things, we often at the same time long regretfully for what is past. The present, on the other hand, is regarded as something quite temporary and serving only as the road to our goal. That is why most men discover when they look back on their life that they have the whole time been living ad interim and are surprised to see that which they'd let go by so unregarded and unenjoyed was precisely their life, was precisely that in expectation of which they lived. So that's Schopenhauer. Then my passage is from the philosopher, mathematician, theologian uh, Blaise Pascal. And this is from Pensée number 47. He says, we do not rest satisfied with the present. We anticipate the future as too slow in coming, as if to hasten its course, or we recall the past to stop its too rapid flight. So imprudent are we that we wander in the times which are not ours, and do not think of the only one which belongs to us. And so idle are we that we dream of those times which are no more, and thoughtlessly overlook that which alone exists. For the present is generally painful to us. We conceal it from our sight because it troubles us, and if it be delightful to us, we regret to see it pass away. We try to sustain it by the future and think of arranging matters which are not in our power for a time we have no certainty of ever reaching. Let each one examine his thoughts, And he will find them all occupied with the past and the future. We scarcely ever think of the present, and if we think of it, it is only to take flight from it to arrange the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone is our end, so we never actually live but only hope to live. And, as we are always preparing to be happy, it is inevitable we never shall be so. So here we see one version of the conflict between the philosopher and the ordinary person. Here the philosopher looks on the human spectacle of people absorbed in the past and eagerly awaiting uh, or fearfully anticipating the future. And the philosopher wishes to point out that all of this, the anticipation and the absorption, rest on a fundamental mistake. For the present alone is real, And hence, all of this wandering in times that are not ours is illusory uh, and is the way that we miss the only life, the only reality that is ours, the present. From this perspective, the human propensity to wander in times which are not ours means that not only that we fail to find happiness in life, but that we, in some sense, fail to live our lives at all since we experience them as always behind us or before us and never present to us. The emotions relating to the past and the future are often precisely the target of the philosophical perspective i just described, but these emotions can profitably be seen as challenges to the coherence of the philosophical perspective on the temporality of our lives. What I mean by this are two two particular challenges. One is the reply on behalf of the ordinary person. Uh, that there simply is no form of human life or human happiness that's concerned exclusively with the present, without the concern with the future basic to being a creature who plans, who acts, and learns from previous experience. The life of an agent is a life lived in time, and that means relating itself to the full spectrum of past, present, and future. Secondly, we may challenge the metaphysics underlying the philosophical perspective, on time illustrated in those passages. For both Pascal and Schopenhauer take for granted that the present has some exclusive claim to be real, whereas the past and the future are the no longer real and the not yet real perhaps never to be real. I would like to suggest, however, that this thought of the exclusive reality of the present is itself an illusion of perspective that the difference between the present and the past does not line up with the metaphysical distinction between the real and the unreal or the true and the false, but rather that the distinction between the real and the unreal, the true and the false has equal application within the past and the future as well as with respect to the present. That is, that the distinction between the real and the unreal, or the true and the fictional, that's a distinction that we make within each of the different temporal perspectives themselves about the past or about the future and is not a distinction that privileges one of these temporal perspectives above the others i'll be elaborating on this point shortly but before moving on i want to briefly mention the interest in the uh, kind of parallel that pascal makes about Uh, between our relation to other temporal perspectives and what he says about our relation to other personal perspectives. He suggests a parallel in how we concern ourselves with other times, other than the present tense, and how we concern ourselves with other people, specifically with how we imagine ourselves to figure in the thoughts of other people. The language is quite similar here. So this is the other passage from Pascal. Uh, Also from Ponce, he says, remember, he started off earlier saying we do not rest content with the present. Here he begins saying, we do not content ourselves with the life we have in ourselves and in our own being. We desire to live an imaginary life in the minds of others. And for this purpose, we endeavor to shine. We labor unceasingly to adorn and preserve this imaginary existence and neglect the real. And if we possess calmness or generosity or truthfulness, we are eager to make it known so as to attach these virtues to that imaginary existence." End of quote. So this passionate concern with how we are perceived by other people is something that Pascal sees as a form of vanity, an attachment to something imaginary, as a corrupted form of the emotional concern we have with how we appear to others, how we imagine ourselves to be seen by others, rather than with how we are in reality in ourselves. In the case of vanity, it's not simply that we take an interest in lives or perspectives other than our own, but that we value our own lives through the imagined perspective of others on whom we hope we make a good impression. We live an imaginary life in the minds of others. It's ourselves and our lives we're concerned with here, but only as we imagine them to be seen by some other person or by other people in general. So, he seems to be saying in both our concern with the past or the future and our concern with how we may appear to others, that Pascal sees an attachment to something basically illusory, something purely imaginary something that substitutes for a proper concern with our real life, with the present, or with our reality in ourselves, rather than the appearance we make on others. So, the philosophical temporal critique from Pascal, Schopenhauer, and others can be put in the following form. We, ordinary folk, we tend to live in the past, we fantasize about the future, We dwell in unrealized possibilities and we thereby miss our lives. And I've suggested a parallel with the critique in Pascal of living an imaginary life in the minds of others. This critique of our concern with how we are seen by others is a critique of dependence as a kind of failure of autonomy. We slavishly live in the eyes of others, adopting an external perspective on our own lives and thereby fail to have a self that is actually one's own. The parallel with the critique of our attachment to the past or future is that in both cases we're said to live our lives in mere appearance rather than in reality. And as is clear from the language I've been using, both critiques gain their force by being presented in metaphysical terms. That is, in terms of a contrast between reality and something else, something unreal. That is, the past, the future, mere appearance. But given the starkness and the absoluteness of the opposition between the real and the unreal, the philosophical critique seeks to present itself in terms of what is conceivable, what it is possible to do, what it makes sense to do, and what doesn't. We're told that the only reality is the present reality and that, of course, you can't literally live in the past or literally live in the future. You can only live in the present. And similarly, you can't literally see yourself through any eyes but your own, think any thoughts but your own, nor can you actually live in a world of appearance rather than in reality. The real, present world is the only world you have to live in. Okay, but this moment is a critical point for the critique itself, the philosophical critique. For it begins to raise a question about just what this criticism is supposed to be of how we live our lives, just what we're supposed to be doing wrong. By the terms of the critique itself, There just is no such thing as actually doing the impossible thing it seems to be convicting us of, living in the past, seeing through the eyes of others rather than one's own, living in a world of appearance rather than reality. These are not real possibilities, according to the philosopher, him or herself. So the philosophical criticism can't be we, ordinary folk, are wrong to live in the past rather than the present for on the philosopher's own view there just isn't any such thing as actually doing that the present just is the only reality so the criticism in question can't be accusing the ordinary person of doing that so then is the philosophical critique instead that we make the mistake of believing that we could or do literally live in the past, etc. It's the critique that we're making this sort of metaphysical mistake and are thus guilty of a kind of logical incoherence in our lives. That is, perhaps the critique is not that we actually do this thing of living in the past or actually living in the eyes of others, because there really isn't any such thing as doing that, but rather we make the mistake of thinking that we can of, or of attempting to live our lives this way we think that we can literally live in the past, although in reality, of course, we can't. This is how we mistakenly understand our lives. Okay, So that's a revision of the original critique. But now, for this criticism to stick, it seems we would have to be convinced that we really are making a metaphysical mistake, that somehow we, the common folk, thought somehow that we could literally live in the past rather than the present, that we really could see ourselves through eyes other than our own, etc. And if that's the idea, then we might reply in our own defense, what reason do we really have to believe that this is how we understand our own lives? What we do think, for instance, is that we care about what happened in the past, just as we also care about such mere possibilities as to what you know like what might have happened but didn't. We also care about how we may figure in the thoughts of certain other people or to other people in general and try to imagine how we might seem from this other point of view. We, we, we do all that. But note, so far, this doesn't describe any metaphysical mistake that we are making. This so far just describes various forms of thought and concern that we engage in. Our ordinary forms of thought include such forms as the present tense, the actual, and the first person point of view. But they also, these ordinary forms of thought, include other temporal categories like the past and the future, and the forms of thought expressed in the third person as well as in the first person. When we think about, say, the last presidential election, the past, and about the next presidential election coming up, the future, We're using these ordinary temporal forms of thought, and when we do so, we're not forgetting that the past is the past and the future is the future, and that neither of these is to be confused with the present moment. We're not losing track of that. Making temporal distinctions like this, and thinking about the last election and the next election, making temporal distinctions like this is just what these temporal categories enable us to do. The crucial point, I think, is this. Thinking about something in the past is not the same thing as thinking of it as though it were the present or as taking the place of the present. Instead, it's just using the ordinary temporal categories as they were meant to be used. So far, it doesn't look like we're making any mistake here. All right, then. Well, what about the idea of reality, the thought that the past and the future are not real and hence it can't make any sense to give any importance to them, to concern ourselves with them, to think about them in any extended way. Well, here again, it's not in fact easy for the philosopher's critique to show that there's any mistake involved in our ordinary forms of thinking and caring about things in these terms. For when I think, for example, about the time that my car was stolen 10 years ago or I worry that it might get stolen if I leave it out on the street tonight and then think that I want to try to sell my car later this year. In all of this, I'm not thinking about that time 10 years ago as if it were in fact today. Instead I'm thinking about it as the past and as far as reality goes. I am thinking of it as something that happened in the real past, not the imagined past, not the merely possible past, not the fictional past. Those are quite different things. What really happened in the past is not the same as a dream or as something fictional or as something wholly unreal, but rather has the kind of reality that past events have that really happened as opposed to those that might have happened but didn't. Similar considerations apply to the thought that my car might possibly get stolen if I leave it on the street tonight. To think that thought and to be concerned with that possibility is not at all to think of that possible happening as though it were really happening now. There's no confusion of the real with the merely possible here. In thinking these thoughts and being concerned in these ways, I'm using the logical category of the possible, in the way that it's supposed to be used. So, if this is right, so far, it's not clear that the philosopher's critique can support itself by appealing to the exclusive reality of the present. Instead, the distinction between the real and the unreal, or between the real and the imaginary, has equal application to the present and to the past and to the future, too. There's a perfectly legitimate notion of truth or reality that applies to what really happened in the past as opposed to what didn't really happen or what I wish had happened. The notion of what is really happening in the present applies to the present. And the notion of what really did happen in the past applies to the past. And as far as reality or truth goes, they're on a par. They just belong to different temporal categories and we already knew that. At the same time, Schopenhauer and Pascal do have a point. There are certainly better and worse ways of living in time, and surely we can recognize something of ourselves in the pictures presented by Pascal and Schopenhauer. There are bad and confused ways of living our lives in time or in how we concern ourselves with how we appear to other people. And this whole business is indeed troubling and confusing. We have the descriptions in Pascal and Schopenhauer of familiar ways that someone can get absorbed in the past or the future and thereby lose the present that's slipping away. These are familiar wrong ways of living out our lives in time. But at the same time, it can seem hard or impossible to describe the right way to live out our lives in time, the right way to temporalize our existence. If we deny the terms of the philosopher's critique, and deny that the present has an exclusive claim to reality, then we're acknowledging that temporalizing our lives is unavoidable for us. The question then will be not how to escape from time, but how to develop vocabularies and forms of thought for distinguishing the better and the worse among the ways in which we live out our lives in time. The 20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein suggests a close relationship between this idea about the present and the correct perspective on life as a perspective of eternity or a perspective outside of time altogether. At one point, a bit late in his, in his book, Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, he writes, if we take eternity to mean not infral, infinite temporal duration, but timelessness, then eternal life belongs to those who live in the present. This is Tractatus 6.4311, for those who want to look it up. We see this also in philosophers like Baruch Spinoza, certain Christian thinkers, and certain Eastern traditions. In a sense, these are the same proposed solution. The perspective of the present moment or perspective outside of time altogether for what is denied by both the exclusive reality of the present and a timeless perspective is the ordinary reality of duration, of continuity, of transience. With these other thoughts, adopting a timeless perspective, we place ourselves outside our dependence on contingency and loss. That's why this perspective is recommended to us. Well, here there seem to be two problems with the implied recommendation of those who live in the present. One is a version of the previous reply that, of course, there isn't anyone who doesn't, in fact, live in the present. If the alternative alternative to that is supposed to be actually living in one of the other temporal dimensions. If, as it seems, there's simply no alternative to actually living in the present, well, then it doesn't make much sense to recommend this to us. A second problem with the idea of living in the present as exclusive claim to reality is the familiar one that the present moment seems too thin, too brief to genuinely concern us or to be found important or even interesting. By comparison with the immediate present moment, the past, by contrast, is this great expanse of everything that ever happened, the good, the bad, the fulfilling, the tragic. And as we move on in time, the past just keeps getting bigger and bigger. All the great people and all their stories are there, the whole factual story of human life on earth. Hence, it's not hard to see how this would occupy our attention and be the object of our deepest and most complex emotions. And although we know much less about the future than we do about the past, it's still the focus of our hopes and fears and we cannot but project ourselves there imaginatively from our lives so far. By comparison with the vast regions of the past and the future, what really is the present moment? How thin a slice of time must it really be in order for us to be true to the injunction to withdraw our intention to the past and future and truly live in the only genuine reality there is, the living present, uncontaminated by either the dead past or the unrealized future. It seems that under the pressure to be serious about this metaphysical demand, we would have to shrink our focus of concern from this year, or this week, or even this hour or this minute, and try to invest ourselves fully in the fleeting moment, a point without extension, which is therefore very difficult, if not impossible, to focus on. And at this point in the argument, the metaphysically superior reality of the present, this firm point that we started from, this begins to look much less secure. We began thinking that we're going to finally retain our grip on what is most solid and real, and to cease wandering in times that are not our own. And now, this solid ground of the present moment begins to seem indiscernible, not a place where we could actually live. Or, one might think that the lesson of the above consideration should be that all times are equally real, where that's taken to mean that there isn't any reason to differentiate our concern between the past, the present, and the future. That is, this might be taken to mean, think of your life as all one great expanse containing all your life events. All of them equally real, existing at different points in the timeline of your life. From this perspective, it might be argued that you have no reason to be concerned with one part of it more than another simply because it's located somewhere different along the great timeline of your life. They're all parts of your life. Hence, if you had high hopes that were later dashed uh, and ended very bla- badly, well, be glad that you had that period of high hopes. It still happened, it's still part of your life as much as it ever was. And conversely, if you once had a painful surgical operation which you're glad to have recovered from, when you said, thank God that's over, there's no real reason to feel relief now or even at the time of your recovery because after all, all of that suffering is still ineradicably, part of your life experience. That painful event is there forever, lodged in your biography. But of course, this seems crazy too. As crazy as dwelling exclusively in the vanishingly brief moment of the present. And none of these perspectives on time seem to make sense of the possibility that the actual fact of real loss in human life, it doesn't seem possible to make sense of something like ordinary grief uh, within the terms of this critique. And indeed, it does sometimes seem to be the point of the philosopher's critique to convince us that grief or regret are just irrational, and that from a proper perspective on our lives, we'll come to see this and thus to be free of such potentially devastating emotions. So, This philosophical critique is on the one hand, a criticism of our ordinary lives, and on the other hand, the promise of a more liberating or consoling perspective that's available to us if we would take it. In Marcel Proust's great novel, In Search of Lost Time, the narrator of the story is very attached to his grandmother. And when she dies, he goes through a period of intense grief and regret for the love that he failed to show her when she was alive. Now she's gone and won't come back. He cannot console himself with the thought that, well, from the perspective of eternity, the period of her life on Earth is just as real as it ever was, that nothing's really changed, that her existence on Earth is just located in a different period that no longer includes the present. With certain forms of loss, especially when they concern other people, we're strongly inclined to refuse the promise that we could live without grief, either by forgetting the lost person altogether or by adopting an atemporal perspective on the person's life from which we see that his or her brief time on earth is as real as it ever was, and hence nothing essential has changed now that this life is entirely in the past and is no longer part of the ongoing present. If the preceding arguments are good, we seem faced with the collision of the following two thoughts. On the one hand, we argued that it's false to claim that only the present is real because I claimed that the past is an equally legitimate category of thought, it's not a form of fiction or illusion, and that within thought about the past, there is its own familiar distinction between the real and the unreal, between what really did happen and what didn't really happen. In this sense, There is no exclusive claim to reality attaching to the present. On the other hand, we should not think that this claim means that there's no essential difference between the present and the past and the future, or that it doesn't make a crucial difference to our proper forms of concern, whether something or someone is part of the present or belongs now exclusively to the past. As Wittgenstein puts it in a very different context, What difference could be greater? Of course we concern ourselves with the past and with the future differently from how we concern ourselves with the present. If my grandmother is no more, I'm not making a metaphysical mistake to still concern myself with her, but nor does this concern with her, with that very person, mean that I'm losing sight of the fact that she's not here now and will not return in the future. So, there's, ordinary room, there's room for ordinary truth and falsity about the past, just as there is about the present, and we're not wrong to concern ourselves with both dimensions of truth and falsity. Past truth and falsity, present truth and falsity. But it doesn't follow from this that the forms of concern are, could be, or should be the same. It may be true that there is a distinction between the real and the unreal, the true and the false with respect to all the different times, but all the same, they're still different times. And as a living person, I am located differently with respect to them. And then all of this I've said so far, is not even to get into the fact that there's something essentially misleading in thinking of these as separate worlds as all at all the world of the past the world of the present the world of the future because after all it's the present that becomes the past just as the past was once the future if you know what i mean i mean today the day that we're having right now will soon be yesterday Uh, today that is to say this Sunday, when I'm recording this, was the future when I was thinking about it last weekend and uh, is going to be the past when we all talk about it tomorrow. So these, my point here being that these temporal categories can't be metaphysically distinct worlds if one of them becomes the other, uh, which then in be- itself becomes one of the other one. The present becomes the past and the future becomes the present. They can't be different worlds. The past and the future then are not separate worlds, but rather temporal categories that form this system together. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You can't have one without the other. They all belong together. They are what they are only in relation to each other, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the fact that they form a system, these temporal categories, that they are part of one thing and that they are what they are only in relation to each other, that fact is yet another reason, I take it, for thinking that this philosophical temporal critique, the idea of the exclusive reality of one of these parts of the system, the present, can't be right, must be confused. For in telling us to acknowledge the present as exclusively real, it presents things as though the category of the present or today with this freestanding category one that we could make sense of all by itself apart from its systematic relations with the other temporal categories of the past and the future as though we could have a concept of today that wasn't part of a system that included the concepts of yesterday and tomorrow as well the very thought according to this line of reason just doesn't make sense we have to take the different temporal categories as a whole therefore We can't think of today or the present moment as some freestanding category with an exclusive claim to reality. It makes no more sense than the idea that we could only have the temporal idea of before uh, without a complementary idea of after. So, it plainly does matter to us whether some bad thing is looming ahead or is safely behind us. That's a difference that matters to any temporal creature. And just as it matters to us whether some beloved person is someone that we will see again in the future or someone whose life is over now and whom we will never see again, that difference matters to us. And we're not wrong for it to matter to us. Neither the exclusive reality of the present moment, then, nor a kind of temporal neutrality across all times Neither of these perspectives makes any sense of human life, even though, as we've seen, sometimes it's precisely such a perspective that's recommended to us as a way to solve the problem of life. Neither the idea of the exclusive reality of the present or a kind of temporal neutrality across all times makes sense as a relation to one's own life. Rather than either of those perspectives, what we want, I'm claiming, is to be able to situate ourselves in time, just as we situate ourselves with respect to other people. I am one person among others, and I also live at a certain point in time. I orient myself from that perspective, both to other people and to other times of my life. I'm living now at a certain time, at a certain point in history, and that's one timeline. And I'm also currently located at a certain specific moment in my own life. That's another timeline. A much shorter timeline, unfortunately. But I'm always located at a particular point there as well. I'm at a certain age now, different from the age that I was a year ago, younger than I will be next year. So I project myself forward in time from a certain point in objective historical time and from a certain point in the finite time of my particular life. This is what I mean by situating oneself in time, as opposed to either an exclusive concern with the present or a concern that is neutral with respect to the past, present, and future. In living a life, I project myself forward in time from here, from today, And I also look back and recollect my past life from here and not from some neutral temporal standpoint or some standpoint outside of time. This is what situating myself in time must mean. And of course, because I'm constantly moving forward in time, I don't stand outside the stream of time and observe it. Rather, I'm this cork floating downstream along with everybody else. Because I'm constantly moving forward in time, I'm constantly at a layered point in the timeline of my life. Because of that, just what I can recollect of my life changes over time. What I mean is, as I grow older, I accumulate more and more past. My past keeps building up. There's always more of it available to me, more as a possible object of recollection and concern, object of pleasure or regret, and at the same time, of course, as I move forward in time, there's less remaining of my particular future, less, available, less of that available to me at every moment. But this shrinking personal future is unlike the ever-growing past that I can survey uh, that's always getting larger. For unlike my ever-growing past that I can survey, I don't in fact know just how much less of my personal future is now available for me to project myself into. I can't survey that future and its finitude in the same way that I can survey the past, either my personal past life or the historical past in general. So that's yet another way, that difference between looking forward and looking back, That's another way in which I must, in living out these temporal categories, relate myself differently to the future than I do to the past. So since I'm situated at a particular moment in my ongoing life, I now have a particular past to reflect on. More of it than I had yesterday, not as much of it as I will have tomorrow. To be situated in time means to live one's life forward from a certain moment in the history of the world, and also from a certain moment in the span of one's particular life. And it's from that moment that one orients oneself toward what now counts as one's past and what can still now count as one's future. Schopenhauer captures something real when he says that the scenes of our life resemble pictures in rough mosaic, which can only seem beautiful, or perhaps can only seem intelligible to us, when viewed from some distance. But as with the viewing of actual mosaics, to say this does not discredit the more distant perspective from which we can see the pattern. And I think Pascal captures something important too in how the incessant preparation to be happy can make happiness itself unreachable. But I think he's wrong to see our various attachments to the past and to the future as examples of wandering in times that are not ours, for all those times belong to us. There are none of them that are not ours. The forms of meaning and attachment that are part of human life belong to the finitude and the temporality of life. They're not available from an exclusive focus on the perspective of the present moment or from a perspective outside of time altogether.
2: by asking you a question that I have, um, and then I'm going to open it up to the questions that we've had in the chat. So the question I have, or what at least I was wondering when I was listening to your lecture, is whether the philosopher's advice is not so much to kind of caution against any kind of um, metaphysical error, um, but sometimes at least it's more to sort of preach a kind of um, emotional acceptance of sorts um, that the presence is all we have. Um, In particular, all we have any direct agency or control over. Um, So on that kind of understanding, I think the philosopher... In inverted commas, when they say, you know, it's only the present that belongs to us, they're actually kind of speaking more directly to the sorts of emotions that you have in mind. Um, so, you know, in response to regrets about the past, the advice is, you know, to emotionally accept <clears throat> that you can't change it. Um, so it's not to say that, that's not to say that the regrets are irrational, but it's to kind of um, temper them a little bit with this awareness <laughs> or this reminder that the present is all you have agency over, but more importantly, the kind of entreaty to accept that emotionally in some sense, as I say. Um, and similarly with, you know, fantasies about the distant future, um, again, the... The kind of entreaty is to sort of emotionally accept that you can only do so much in that regard as well. Um, And of course, the same goes for, um, you know, other people's perceptions, thoughts, opinions about us, right? That we don't have direct agency or or control over those either. So you could hear it. And I think it kind of is natural to hear or at least when I think about that line of advice, I think of it in terms of a kind of incitement to a sort of healthy emotional life which isn't one that doesn't you know include any regrets or hopes or anything but it's one that um reminds us um that part of that has to be an acceptance that um all we have agency over is in the here and now um and a tiny little indulgence on my part if you don't mind here. <laughs> so it kind of reminded me you know when Descartes talks about the source of error as being kind of extending our will beyond our understanding. It's just it's just really a kind of structural parallel, but it made me think of that you know this side like, and it made me think about this kind of tendency that might be involved in regret, perhaps to some extent or unhealthy regret maybe, um, mm-hmm. an unhealthy fantasy about the future, hope for the future, tendency to sort of extend our will, beyond where it's kind of metaphysically possible for it to go. (laughs) But again, the thought is not that it's a metaphysical error. You know, the philosopher's not taking the person they're advising to be making a metaphysical error of any kind. Rather, they're kind of, yeah, they're urging a sort of emotional acceptance upon them. Does that ring true at all?
1: It rings true, uh, certainly, about certain aspects of my target here, anyway, because I think, uh, and speaking very broadly, that there are many traditions of philosophy that present themselves to us or or recommend to us that we shrink our forms of concern to uh, what we can directly control, as I think you put it. Perhaps this is a cartoon version of of certain forms of Stoicism, uh, but uh, But anyway, it's one way of reading um, Stoic recommendations. So anyway, I am, I suppose I should say, in general, suspicious of uh, philosophies, uh, philosophical recommendations that present themselves as offering us a way out of vulnerability and loss. Vulnerability, you know, to harms that we can't control. Uh, so, we can disinvest from those things that, that we can't control. Vulnerability to loss, so, we should disinvest uh, from those contingent attachments that time or just the accidents of life will make us lose. So, just to give a kind of general re- response to your question, um, that's something that, that's a kind of promise that various philosophical traditions uh, offer us that I don't believe. Uh, that would be the first part of my answer to you. And then a second part of my answer is, is that, well, if if the thought is uh, not, as you put it, you know, not that we're making a metaphysical error, but just as it were a kind of practical emotional advice that um, since the present is all that you really can affect, uh, you should concentrate on that and not on the past. Again, I think there's something mistaken in that as well, because if we really think of the present as just the present moment, um, that's a pretty uh, tiny scope of agency uh, for us here where we really can't accomplish uh, much at all. And if that is really meant to exclude the future, well, then what does this notion of even affecting things come to? And then... After all, shouldn't our agency, um, uh, even if it is restricted to the present in some way, shouldn't that be informed by what we remember about the past and what we care about about the past, what we want to make sure that we avoid repeating uh, from the past? So it, it, at least as my first response to your your question is, is uh, I think, even as a piece of uh, – Practical advice in uh, joining a kind of emotional acceptance, I think I'm rejecting that too.
2: <laughs> yeah, so the first point you made about disinvesting, I wonder whether it really, well, it dep- yeah, it depends what we mean by emotional acceptance, I suppose, doesn't it? But you, I mean, one could argue that, you know, proper regret, uh, healthy regret, kind of includes the understanding that a certain kind of acceptance that the only um, agency one has is kind of current, present agency as, as part of it. So it's not, it's not to kind of lessen the regret, one might argue, rather it's just a healthy form of that regret or something. So you can be as emotion, you can continue to be, you know, extremely regretful, <laughs> but in a way that is healthy. Well, I think you're,
1: you're quite right. The the more practical advice and the criticism of a metaphysical mistake are kind of the distinction between those two are kind of blurring at here at this point. And yeah, uh, w- when you say um, something like, uh, well, the point is to, you know, bear in mind, don't lose sight of the fact that you can't change the past uh, after all. Um, I think that's a, a version of the very thing that I'm... Uh, complaining of here because a person who is regretful or in grief, you know, I imagine the comeback from that person to the imagined philosopher here is like, I know I can't change the past and that's the whole problem, right? (laughs) uh, I'm not losing sight of that at all. My grief, my regret is firmly based on... vivid uh, appreciation of the fact that I cannot change the past. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, again, it seems like even at the level of practical advice, like, you know, well, there's healthy regret, but don't lose sight of the fact that you can't change the past. I feel the the grieving or regretful person is not losing sight of that, uh, or not necessarily. You know, it, it, it doesn't go necessarily with the intensity of grief or regret that the person is somehow thinking. I mean, if they really you know, thought uh, there was a possibility of changing the past, Uh, they they well might not be so grief-stricken or regretful.
2: Yeah, I don't mean to say that they really, you know, in some kind of like explicit, clear-sighted way, Think that? Yeah. That's what I'm but, trying to put pressure
1: I, I, on here, because you you, yeah. you get a kind of criticism that's couched in you know semi metaphorical terms. You know, you can't live in the past, you can't yeah. uh, change the past, or something. And then I want to put pressure on that and say like, well, yeah, right. Um, on all, all sides, both parties uh, uh, agree with those sort of commonplaces. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but then I'm, I'm trying to put pressure on the, on this, you know, philosophical character uh, to now put that criticism in in terms that uh, are not metaphorical and, and that are you know would be mm-hmm. agreed to by both sides if if there's mm-hmm. a criticism to make. To get back to your original point about emotional acceptance, of I mean, I think of course I want to agree that there's something to that insofar as. I try to make it clear in in the talk that I do agree that there are better or worse ways of temporalizing our lives and something in the patterns of behavior that people like Schopenhauer or Pascal are describing, um, you know, can be familiar forms of poor uh, temporalizing of our lives. But what I'm concentrating so much on these in the talk on these arguments that start from some metaphysical basis, but the idea that the the, the, pa- the present is the only reality and uh, attachments to the past or the future are attachments to illusion or, or to imagine something imaginary in some sort, I, I want to criticize those and say it's like as it to sort of you know see if we can remove them from the scene and say they can't the metaphysically based arguments can't be doing the work they can't really be doing any work in these arguments so that we can then see so what's left over you know what are the more um realistic terms of criticism that we can use to talk about the better and the worse ways of temporalizing our lives and i'm i'm, I'm trying to open that up as saying that you know that's kind of unexplored territory in philosophy, and, and sort of one of the reasons I think it's unexplored, I mean, one is, of course, it's just intrinsically difficult to talk about. Two, discussion in that territory, I feel, is like short-circuited by uh, appeal to these the, the metaphysical arguments I'm taking from Pascal and Schopenhauer, because we say like, you know, all of that uh, all of those forms of attachment can be discredited because they, we, we see that they're attachments to something unreal. So that short circuits this more you know, nuanced uh, discussion of the better and worse ways of uh, living in time. And then thirdly, um, something that your last comment, Sophie, pointed out is that um, you know, one of the things that makes it difficult to speak philosophically about these things is that uh, the better and the worse is going to exist along a real spectrum of you uh, know how we relate to the immediate past, how we relate to the distant past, and how we relate to the immediate future, you know, in, in just being an agent, and how we relate to the distant future. And so, you know, at what point does it, it even make sense to talk about you know the failure to move on or 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 something like that, or or the failure to give up uh, some regret from from the past. Uh, or you know um, uh, uh, a perspective on the distant future um, that replaces you know any concern with the immediate future. I, um, when I talked about this being a theme in literature and poetry, et cetera, one thing I, you know, famous instance of this, I was thinking of Chekhov's play *The Three Sisters*, where you know they're consumed with this far-off, distant thought about when they move to Moscow. You know that everything will will be different. Um, And their attachment to that thought in in the distant future, you know, as Chekhov presents it, you know, kind of replaces or crowds out their attention to the the more immediate future.
2: Great. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, I have a question here from Odette. Um, So it says, perhaps Richard can say something about the way in which the future can change the meaning of the past. Um, as the meaning of Proust's early literary failures changed in light of his later success,
1: <laughs> I'm going to make a response that might be thought of as kind of evasion of your of your question, but uh, I don't mean it to be. And that is this: that the perspective on the um, inescapability of our living in time and the um, the deflecting on my part of these offers, of either live, uh, philosophical offers of leave, either living exclusively in the present or taking a, a perspective on our lives outside of time or that's indifferent to the difference between past, present, and future. The inescapability of living in time is something that I think is you know, one of the great uh, lessons uh, of, of Proust's novel, In Search of Lost Time. Um, I think it's really part of the greatness of, of that novel. And that's why, when you get to the final volume of the novel, I get troubled because I feel in the final volume that Proust is really tempted by uh, the idea of a perspective on life outside of time altogether. And that's a way, one of the ways, that he interprets the succession of experiences of involuntary memory that he has in the Guermont library uh, before the matinee, and that temptation he has as a way of conceiving of uh, his literary vocation at the end as uh, enabling him to conceive of a self that is himself that uh, exists outside of time. Uh, and, and that that's something that the experiences of... Uh, uh, involuntary memory give him, um, and that's something that the idea of his artistic vocation gives him. I want to deny him that, okay? <laughs> um, because I, I, because I feel that the important lesson. Uh, uh, the thing that all of the rest of the novel um, is presenting for us is is something more like this picture I'm talking about, of the the inescapability. There is no human life outside of time, and to be inside of time is to be, you know, subject to all of the vulnerabilities and the losses that go with time.
2: We have a question now from Julian. Um, so, is one upshot that many philosophers call to reject illusions um, ironically, a refusal to accept the reality that there is no escape from the temporality, infection, and sadness of life. Well, I mean,
1: yeah. In, in a sense, I think that is one of the upshots of of my talk. I mean, in a sense, what my talk is trying to trace out is kind of you know a, a continual begging of the question against the you know uh, equal truth, equal reality of the different temporal dimensions. Uh, we haven't been given any reason to think that uh, one uh, enjoys greater reality than the other. And especially if we take my point toward the end that the temporal categories of past, present, and future are not each freestanding units or freestanding worlds that we might inhabit at different times, um, but form a system. They only are what they are in relation to each other. Uh, There can't be any present uh, that has no relation to the past because it 's in the very nature of the present to become the past, so I think the idea of rejecting an illusion here is itself an illusion i mean yeah i 've been emphasizing in the talk the imperfection and, and loss uh, and and I, I do take that to be one of the um, you know one of the motivations uh, for the temporal critique the philosophical temporal critique that we 're seeing from people like um, Pascal and Schopenhauer. They do present our attachment to the past or the future as um, you know, a, a portrait of the unhappiness of the human condition. But that, again, I would want to claim is that's their picture of the human condition. That is to say, uh, if i could speak for ordinary people here the ordinary person living in living ineluctably in time does not have to think of that fact as being uh equivalent to the sadness or the uh as schopenhauer puts it the, the vanity of existence that's a particular philosophical spin on the fact of change and transience uh in life um and Naturally, there are other philosophers who, you know, who will make the, uh, the, the contrary argument that I feel closer to, you know, that it's the very uh, transience and finitude of human temporal existence uh, that's the source of the, you know, the joy, the satisfaction, the happiness of life.
2: Um, good, thank you. Uh, so we have an interesting question here um, about trauma. So what does the, uh, this diagnosis of temporal inauthenticity um, so absorption in the past teach us about specific um, pathologies or, like trauma? Um, how should we approach them from your point of view?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I don't, of course, have any special expertise uh, uh, for talking about uh, trauma or, or similar pathologies. So I'm not sure I have any advice to give there. But I think we could say this, and I don't know if this is even true, but a very common way of describing the difference between uh, a person suffering trauma and a person undergoing regret or grief You could think of those as both, you know, unhappy or painful uh, relations to the past, a common way of describing the person in trauma is that they really are li- reliving that experience over and over again, and that they really do lose the distinction between what's happening now and what happened in the past. Uh, and that's that's very different from what I've been saying all along about, you know, even the person who is, you know, can't let go of a grudge or, or can't let go of a regret. Um, my claim all along in this paper is that there's ways of criticizing such behavior, but it's wrong to criticize that behavior as, uh, as being a case of someone treating the past as though it were present, right? Uh, they can be concentrated on the past as past. They're not confusing the past with the present. They're thinking of it as past, and maybe they are consumed with it in the wrong way. Maybe they are over in it in the wrong way. But I've been arguing in this talk that um, we don't yet have reason to think that they are confusing the past with the present. One can be deeply concerned with the past and, and, and not, not be confused for a moment about its, its difference, one's present moment. However, and this is where I'm you know outside of my expertise, it's very common to describe uh, the experience of trauma, uh, repetition trauma um, and and other forms, as a case where the person really, you know, they're not just regretting or have bad memories of uh, uh, something terrible that happened to them, but they really are reliving them uh, again and again. And when they are reliving them, they really do lose grip on the difference between what's happening now and what's what happened in the past, and so i don't have advice to give, but I 'm glad you brought that up because um, it helps to mark out the uh, topography here because you know there is a space here uh, in thinking uh, for a kind of uh, thought and emotional reaction that really does um, involve uh, um, losing track of the, the difference between uh, the present and the past. And, and trauma may well uh, be an example of that.
2: Mm. Yes. We were talking earlier, weren't we, about kind of obsessive regret there as well, you know, that there may be on, on a kind of sliding scale. There can be that, right. Yeah. Less, less
1: extreme than uh, trauma, but really humiliating moment that I can't uh, stop replaying and replaying and i i I suffer that humiliation again and again i guess i'm agreeing that there is a spectrum of
2: cases here uh so our next question professor moran suggested that the real unreal distinction um applies to the present past and future um but it wasn't clear to um simon who's asking how it applied to the future in particular okay um So
1: that's an excellent question, because I think you do have to Mm -hmm. say different things uh, about uh, the reality of the past and the reality of the future, depending on your uh, metaphysical um, commitments. I mean, a certain kind of um, uh, hard determinist uh, about the future may believe that the future is just as determinate as the past. Past is the past and there's no changing it. And uh, one could make, many people do, uh, philosophers and scientists to make a a similar claim about the future that uh, actually it's all laid out in advance uh, by the initial conditions and the laws of nature. And although we can't know the future from here, um, it's already just as determinate as the past. That would be one way. I wanna back off from that simply because I don't know my way around the really serious metaphysical um, work on time here. But I would say this, so rather than the real-unreal distinction, we could, you know, a little more um, uh, conservatively talk about the, you know, the, the true versus fictional uh, distinction or the true versus imaginary distinction. And I think that has uh, equal application to the future as it does to uh, the present or the past. That is to say, there's a difference in thinking about the past between what happened and uh, what I thought would happen or what I wished had happened, right? And and that distinction applies straightforwardly to the past. And something like that distinction uh, applies to the future as well. The difference between what really will be happening uh, as different from what I, now uh, think will happen or what I now hope will happen, that difference in the future, we can apply that difference between what I think or what I hope or what I imagine in the future and what in the future is really in fact going to happen. So uh, it's in that way that I would lay out the parallel between how the the true-false or true-fictional or true versus imaginary distinction has kind of equal application
0: to both the past and the future. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes in this series, so do subscribe on whatever platform you use. Leave us a review, tell your friends about us. You can also watch videos of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters. And find out about our live events at wallinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.